the text for our sermon this morning is Job chapter 8, verse 3 and verse 20. Verse 3, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Verse 20, behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. At this time, we'll call the children down to the front for the children's sermon. Well, the Bible verses that we just read, they teach us something very important about sinners when they are shown what God's law says and how they've disobeyed it. Let me ask you a question. When you get in trouble, what do you normally do? You make excuses, don't you? She started it. I thought you said... My friends all do it. Now, let me ask you another question. Has that ever worked? Have you ever gotten out of trouble because of your excuses? No, you have not. Excuses never work, but we still try. And so you see, that tells us something about our hearts. Even though we never, ever avoid trouble by making excuses, we still do it anyway. The verses that we just read are answers to excuses. The three most common excuses people make. They were, in fact, the excuses answered in the catechism lesson a few minutes ago. And those excuses are, number one, it's not fair that God gets to tell me what to do. Number two, it's not fair for God to be angry at sin. And number three, God is merciful, so he can't punish sin. You remember a few weeks ago, I gave you that example that your mom tells you to go get your bike out of the driveway and put it away, and you respond by throwing your shoes away and then telling her, you can't, I can't go out there and walk on the gravel, I don't have shoes. And that excuse won't work because it isn't mom's fault that you don't have shoes. You had them. She and dad bought them for you. It's your fault because you threw them away. God created man holy and happy. But our first parents listened to the devil's lie, which was, it's not fair that God gets to tell you what to do. And when they sinned, their nature, our nature, changed. We're no longer holy and happy. We're sinful and miserable. Now, just because we did that to ourselves doesn't mean that God can't command us to obey him anymore. That's a crazy excuse, but people try it every day. The next excuse is that it isn't fair for God to be angry with our sins. Now, this excuse ignores that God is holy and good. Could God be good if he didn't hate evil and punish sin? No, of course not. And you'd be very worried about him protecting you if you thought that he didn't hate evil. But when men make this excuse, they're not really thinking about that. All they're thinking about is, I love my sin and I don't want to get in trouble for it. And the third excuse says, if God is merciful, then he can't punish evil. And that's really just a fancy way of saying God can't punish sin without being mean. All these excuses ignore who God is. You know, in the verses we read earlier, God is called the Almighty. This means that he is the creator and ruler of everything. Now, he didn't become ruler of heaven and earth because he was picked by somebody. He won an election. Or because his dad was king before him. God is God. God is king of heaven and earth because he is God. 
And one of the most common names we use of God is what? Lord. And Lord means boss, ruler, king. It means that he has the right to command us. He has the right to reward those who love him. And he has the right to punish those who don't. Our hearts by nature don't want to accept that God is God. We don't like the fact that he has the right to tell us what to do. We want to be the boss. And the lesson that our verses teach us is that God is God. He rules heaven and earth. And he rules fairly. He never bends the rules. He never overlooks disobedience. He rules with fairness. So when he shows mercy, it isn't because he hasn't judged our sins. Jesus was punished for our sins. God judged them. And so when God judges sinners, it isn't because he's unfair. Now, after we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Well, right on the surface of our text this morning is the subject of divine justice. It is emphatically stated by way of a rhetorical question that God is just in all his ways. The argument of our text coincides with the lesson our catechism teaches us today, namely that God's dealings with His creatures are always according to justice. God is just when He commands His creatures. He is just when He punishes the wicked, and He is just when He shows mercy. So our outline then is as follows. Number one, the justice of God's demand. Number two, the justice of God's wrath. And number three, the justice of God's mercy. So the justice of God's demand. The first way that fallen man seeks to justify himself is by denying the justice of God's demands. It's not fair that God makes this demand of me. Question 9 of the Catechism deals with that objection, which unrepentant sinners have made since time immemorial. The objection is that it isn't just or fair of God to demand obedience from His creatures, since He already knows that we're fallen and thus incapable of obeying His law. Job's friends are often mistaken in their assessment of Job personally, but the principles they're arguing are generally sound. And in our text, Bildad is arguing that the the just administration of God's government. God is a just judge. The wicked aren't acquitted nor are the righteous punished. The presupposition behind Bildad's statements is that God has the right to make demands of His creatures. Now let's think about that for a minute. We all agree that God is just when He rewards the righteous and condemns the wicked. But according to what standard are the righteous and the wicked assessed? Well, we know the answer. It's the law of God. And that means that God is entirely within His right to make demands of His creatures. And therefore, He is just when He rewards or punishes them. We are dealing with an ancient objection here. This is the lie of the serpent in the garden. Satan asked Eve, Did God really say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And when she affirms that God has forbidden the fruit of the tree of knowledge on pain of death, the serpent replies, you will not die. 
God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the heart of that objection is that this commandment is unjust. This is good fruit. And God is trying to keep something good away from you. That's unjust. It's unfair that God should determine good and evil and then impose that standard on you. Mankind has been repeating these satanic objections ever since. In the book of Ezekiel, we find Israel repeatedly complaining, the way of the Lord is not fair. It's a demonstration of just how perverse the sinner's heart really is. He would more readily charge God with injustice than admit that he's wrong. When he's told of the sinfulness, of his sinfulness and his corrupt nature, instead of pleading God's mercy, he instinctively shifts the blame onto God's shoulders. Like Adam, he says, the woman that, that you gave me, Tell a man that he owes a debt of righteousness and obedience to God and that he is now ruined because he's destroyed himself. And instead of acknowledging the justice of God, he protests. It's not fair that God makes this demand of a perfect obedience from me then. Remember the illustration I used a minute ago in the children's sermon and a few weeks ago. Suppose your mom tells you to go get your bike and put it back in the garage and you respond by throwing your shoes away and then saying, I can't walk out there on that gravel, I don't have shoes. That excuse won't fly because shoes had been provided for you. It isn't mom's fault that you don't have them. It's yours because you threw them away. Man's heart is now sinful and inclined to all evil. Does that mean that God no longer has the right to demand obedience? Of course not. It isn't God's fault that we can't obey anymore. We ruined ourselves by sin and now sinning is our nature. I think we've been deceived by the thieving, wicked practices like bankruptcy. A man racks up a great burden of debt and then declares bankruptcy and all of his creditors are just out of luck. We've legalized theft. We can legally stiff the lender by filing bankruptcy. God doesn't rule his universe that way. The fact that we've ruined ourselves doesn't nullify God's rights over us. Now, we all understand the fairness of the principle of returning something you've borrowed. And if I borrow money from the bank and then intentionally misbehave so that I get fired and then proceed to go tell the bank that they no longer have the right to expect payment for the loan, how do you think that'll go? By nature, man instinctively denies the same fair principle when it comes to God's sovereign rights over his creatures. We act as if irresponsible behavior absolves us of our responsibilities. In what world does that make sense? God created man upright and able to obey. Man destroyed, man destroyed himself by committing treason against God and somehow thinks that treason absolves him of the duty of loyalty to his king. That's moral insanity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Man's disobedience did not, does not, cannot absolve man of his duty to obey God's law, nor does it nullify God's right to demand perfect obedience. God is not unjust when he demands perfect obedience to his law because that's the state in which man was created. It would only be unjust if 
Men were created unable to render perfect obedience to God, but that's not the case. Man was created righteous and holy and able to obey perfectly. And therefore, the objection under consideration appears for what it really is, hatred of God's holiness. Look at Genesis 4. What do we find? When God judges Cain to essentially to homelessness for murdering his twin brother, what does he say? Yes, Lord, just and true are thy ways, O king of saints. No, he objects. My punishment is greater than I can bear. He literally accuses God of injustice for holding him to the standard of the law. That's fallen human nature on display. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is justly condemned to hell. Abraham tells him that directly. How does he respond? Yes, Father Abraham, you're right. God has held me to the standard of his holy law. I can see that now. No, he says, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And underneath that petition is this very same objection. It is an assault on God's justice. In the rich man's request, there's the insinuation that if he had had a visitor from beyond the grave, he wouldn't have come to this place of torment. He's insinuating that God's ordained way of salvation is unjust. That though he had Moses and the prophets, he hadn't received sufficient warning. More was demanded of him than was just for God to demand. And that's a direct assault on God's justice. That leads us to our second point, the justice of God's wrath. Fallen man's first attempt to justify himself is to deny the justice of God's demands. The second is what question 10 deals with. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And at the bottom of every objection against God's wrath is a low view of sin. Actually, it's a low view of God. We do not see God as holy, as majestic, and as glorious as He really is, and therefore we do not appreciate the gravity of sin against Him. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 51, David is repenting of his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, and he says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And our hearts instinctively great at that statement. Why? Because it strikes us as a cop-out. Oh, it's easy for God to forgive him because it wasn't a crime against him. Let David go ask Uriah for forgiveness and let's see how it goes. By nature, men deny that a sin is a crime against God. It feels to us as though the sin against Uriah and Bathsheba was worse than the sin against God. By nature, we're either functional atheists or we imagine that God winks at sin. So let's set some foundation, deep foundation. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what is that commandment forbidding? Well, it's forbidding atheism. It's forbidding not having a God. But more specifically, it is forbidding not having the Lord as our God. Every other commandment derives its authority and force from this one. Now, I'm willing to bet that most people think of murder as worse than atheism. 
Most people think of adultery as worse than neglecting the worship of God. Most people think of racism as worse than anything forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Most people think of robbing a bank as worse than taking God's name in vain. You see, we're either functional atheists or we secretly imagine that God winks at sin, sins against himself. When a man commits a sin against his neighbor, be that sin ever so evil, it is infinitely more evil as an act against God than it is a crime against our neighbor. No one will ever sufficiently feel his own guilt and thus repent in the gospel sense of that word until he comes to grips with that truth. The sinfulness of any sin lies in the fact that it is an affront to God. By comparison, the guilt, of, the guilt against God is so great that the guilt against our fellow man, even when that guilt is adultery and murder, almost doesn't even register. It's like putting an anvil on a scale balance and a feather on the other side. Now, the feather is real. No one will deny that. That feather may have great importance in its own right. It may represent very serious matters in its own realm. But compared to the anvil, its weight is negligible. Bildad says, does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? The administration of God's government is always just because it is according to His nature. Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. See, a man who is unholy can't love holiness. In fact, he can't even understand it. An unholy person could never conceive and therefore never admire God's moral excellence. This is the real reason why so many people hotly object to the doctrine of God's retributive justice. And they do so in the face of visible and obvious displays of it. A city known for immorality is wiped off the map by a hurricane. A blaspheming comedian dies on stage in the middle of her act. The economy of a profligate, God-hating nation collapses. Any impartial witness would readily see divine judgment there. But this doctor is both denied and mocked. And the reason why is that unholy men cannot conceive of something that they don't love as being a perfection in God's nature. Look, if you were called to account right now, and God found you guilty and condemned you to everlasting punishment, would you be prepared to confess that the verdict was according to justice? You know what? Let me water that question down. If you suffered what David endured for his sin, the death of a darling child, would you be tempted to murder and to object, murmur and, and object that you were unfairly treated? In Lamentation 3, verse 39, the prophet Jeremiah asks, Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? And yet everyone is ready to complain. Everyone is quick to protest any penalty being visited upon his guilt. Man has convinced himself that it is unreasonable and unrighteous of God to judge sin. And therefore, they sin with impunity and indignantly protest the slightest infliction of justice. 
This is the reason why the free grace of God, His sovereign mercy proclaimed in the gospel, isn't adequately welcomed and appreciated. There's simply no room for anything like free grace and sovereign mercy in a mind that denies the reality of judgment. If there were no perfect justice in my being condemned, then there's no mercy in my being forgiven. Let's go back to that first commandment for a second. The first commandment of the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me. And I want to pay special attention to those words, before me. In Hebrew, those words literally read, before my face. Now, this teaches us that God sees everything and He takes special notice of and is therefore greatly displeased with the sin of not having Him as our God or living without reference to Him as our God. These words should dissuade us of anything that make us view sin against God lightly. We should view neglect of God, neglect of His Word, neglect of His worship as impudent provocation of His anger because that's how He views it. Our catechism calls sin rebellion. Now we think of rebellion in terms of persistently disobedient teenagers. But true rebellion, the true meaning of that word as it's used in Scripture, is the rejection and attempted overthrow of a just and lawful ruler. Sin is an attempt to yank God off His throne and put self there in His place. The serpent's lie was, you should get to decide for yourself what is good and evil. Sin is a denial that God has the right to command His creatures and therefore to reward or punish them. When we view sin properly, the scales tip. We no longer think of sin as primarily against our neighbor. Sin is rebellion against the God to whom we owe our existence, without whose will we cannot so much as move. And therefore, we cannot object to the justice of His judgment. In Psalm 9, Psalm 72, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Acts 17, and in many other places, Scripture tells us that God will judge the world in righteousness. Now, what does this imply? A, it implies that God will not judge arbitrarily. God will be angry with the wicked in that day, but His extreme and infinite hatred of the wicked will not drive Him into some unhinged fury or rage. Frenzy. Though they be His enemies, He will judge them according to justice. He will lay judgment to the line and righteousness to the plummet. He will try them fairly by the law which He has given them. They have Moses and the prophets. And secondly, God will not judge partially or leniently. He has declared that He will by no means clear the guilty, that every man shall receive the reward of his deeds, that the wages of sin is death, and that the wicked will go away into everlasting punishment. The judgment will be rigid, firm, and unyielding. No weak sympathy for the criminal will melt God's heart to pardon or reduce the penalty. Stern, unbending, perfect righteousness will determine all. And that leads us to our third and final point, the justice of God's mercy. Bildad says, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. Whether in judgment or in mercy, God is always just. 
Our third question asks, is not God then also merciful? Now, we have to remember where we are in the sequence of arguments. We haven't come yet to the subject of our redemption. We're still learning of our sin and misery. And so this question is an objection. It's one more attempt of the sinner to justify himself. It's a way, it's an attempt to find a way out of sin and misery without satisfaction and without repentance. It's an attempt to change God's character so that it's safe to sin before his face. This objection attempts to pit God's attributes against each other, especially his justice and mercy, so as to introduce a conflict between them. It's trying to force a conflict with God's mercy so that he's compelled to deny his justice. Question 11 is closely related to the previous one and in fact implies the answer that we've already been given. God will not leave sin unpunished. He is filled with wrath against all our sin, original and actual. He curses everyone who does not keep his righteous commandments and he punishes them with temporal as well as eternal punishment. And that's where this objection weasels in. So what, God's not merciful? You'll meet this objection every day. The objector is saying that if you insist that God is always filled with wrath against the sinner and that God punishes sin in time and eternity, then your God is a cruel tyrant, a merciful monster who wants his pound of flesh. This objection is always brought against those of us who deny that God is gracious to the sinner outside of Christ. This objection is brought against us when we insist with Scripture that there is no salvation outside of faith in Christ and that the lost perish eternally in hell. It is objected that God's mercy militates against him visiting righteous damnation upon the head of the sinner. There is no such conflict in God. You see, this is one of our greatest intellectual sins. We pit God's attributes against each other. In fact, this is a denial of God's perfection. No attribute of God is at odds with any other. God maintains himself as sovereign ruler of the universe by way of his justice. God is good. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. He reveals himself as infinitely perfect in all his dealings with his creatures. He will be glorified in them. He made all things for his own sake, even the wicked for the day of evil, as Proverbs 16.4 says. God seeks his own glory in the righteous and in the wicked. And that means that it is God's will that all his creatures acknowledge him as the infinitely perfect ruler of heaven and earth. The creature must confess that he is God and that he is the perfection of goodness. And for this reason, God always reveals himself to his creatures as the perfect sovereign of heaven and earth. And he does so by rewarding the good with good and the evil with evil. God never departs from this fundamental rule of government. What does our text assert? God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoer. No creature can escape the implications of this rule, not even for a second. God, in seeking his own glory, makes his creatures know that he is infinitely perfect. He blesses the righteous. He makes the righteous happy in holiness so that he may taste and see that the Lord is good. Likewise, God makes the sinner miserable. He curses him in the way of his sin in order that he too will acknowledge that God is good. 
Psalm 18, verses 25 to 27 declare, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but bring down haughty looks. Scripture teaches us to pray. Do good, O Lord, to those that be good, and to them that are upright in heart. And the Scripture assures us that, as for such as turned aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. God governs the world according to His justice so that He makes Himself known to all His moral creatures as absolutely good by rewarding the good with good and the evil with evil. And that's clearly the sentiment of our passage. Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will He uphold the evildoers. We must come to terms with this reality. When God punishes the guilty, it is not at the expense of mercy. And when God forgives the sinner, it's not at the expense of justice. So while mercy inclines God to forgive, justice must receive satisfaction in order for the forgiveness to be given. If you deny this, you place in clashing opposition two of God's essential attributes. And you do that and you deny God's perfection and therefore you deny God himself. It is a huge mistake to think of God as acting sometimes from one attribute and at other times from another. God acts in harmony with all his attributes at all times. Exercising one never entails suspending another. When God punishes the guilty, it's not at the expense of mercy. And when God forgives the sinner, it's not at the expense of justice. God's mercy is by way of righteousness. God is as faithful to his promises as he is to his law. And the Father has promised the Son pardon for all his people because Christ fulfilled the law for them, because Christ carried their sorrows, and because Christ bore their sins upon the cross. Mercy is provided only in the atoning righteousness of the Son of God. You know, we all know and love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Upon what, though, does that verse predicate our forgiveness? Upon God's justice and faithfulness. It would be unjust of God to not forgive the sins of His people for whom Christ has made atonement. It would be unfaithfulness to His eternal covenant to require at my hand what He's already required at Christ's. And therefore, even as the sinner saved through Christ enters into everlasting life, the justice of God will burn the more brightly because God has pardoned not without ransom. Now, our last three sermons have been about the bad news to which the gospel's good news is the solution. Today, we have seen how the sinner seeks to justify himself before God, either by denying the fairness of God's moral law, the fairness of God's wrath, or by pitting God's mercy against his judgment, his justice. And Scripture sweeps away this refuge of lies. Does God subvert judgment? Does the Almighty pervert justice? Now, the responses to these objections teach us three things. Number one, we shouldn't despair of deliverance from sin because God is merciful. 
Number two, we shouldn't abuse God's mercy and thus deceive ourselves, for He is also exceedingly just. And thirdly, we should seriously and diligently consider the means by which God will have His justice satisfied in order to obtain gospel comfort for both life and death. Let us pray.